This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Toby Muse. He's going to be telling us about the rise of the new cocaine militias in Colombia, how the peace deal has basically fallen apart and why many of the FARC have decided to actually go back to war against the state despite the peace process uh, to stop the conflict only being four years old. Toby has a great book out at the moment about all of this. It's called Kilo. No, this is not an advert. It's genuinely a very good book. I've read it. Do have a look for it. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front or you can go to popularfront.co slash support. All right, mate. So I think the first thing we should do before we get into the, the cocaine militias, the FARC, all of that, is maybe you can explain how did Colombia become the capital of the cocaine trade, if you like? Yeah, well, so essentially, so you start with the coca bush, right? This kind of very bland, plain-looking coca bush that is grown in the northern Andes. Um, so the indigenous across that region, Peru, Bolivia, Colombia, have been using this for hundreds and hundreds of years to chew on the coca paste. They activate the alkaloids in the coca leaf. Sorry, they chew on the coca leaves. They activate the coca, um, the alkaloids, with a kind of lime that activates it. Now, what it does is, uh, so you hear these uh, these Spanish conquistadores getting to the region, and they're reporting that the indigenous chew this coca. It suppresses hunger, and it kind of makes them be able to march and work longer, which is important in this mountainous zone of the um, of the of the of, of that part of the world. Um, cocaine's developed at about uh, late eighteen hundreds. Um, it's kind of developed by, I think, is a German chemist, and then it's kind of adopted. It's used as a um, uh, to anesthetize people. That's his kind of breakthrough. Freud is a Sigmund Freud, the therapist, is a big fan of it. He recommends it to everyone, and so then it kind of gets outlawed later on in the nineteen in the twentieth century. And it's about the seventies that with this kind of the 60s are over and the 70s and disco is in and cocaine makes this roaring comeback in America. And at the beginning, it's kind of the cocaine is in Bolivia, in Peru, in Colombia. And it infiltrates different governments, but none of those countries had cocaine cartels as strong and as powerful as those in Colombia because Colombia comes from this kind of history of violence and these ongoing civil wars and in the chaos of a country where the central government has never been able to rule the whole country you have these kind of alternate powers and the cartels are just one kind of um example of that and over in recent history the cocaine production in bolivia and peru has gone down and down and down in colombia it's continued to skyrocket and the most recent figures are the biggest amount of cocaine in history is now being produced right now, bigger than any time in history, more than Pablo Escobar. Right now, there's more cocaine around than ever before. <laughs> That's crazy because they just had this, uh, you know, this deal with the FARC. I mean, I don't want to jump ahead too much right now, but um, why is that? Why is it suddenly so high? Well, exactly. It's what you say. It goes back to that peace deal with the FARC. And there's a couple of things there. So on the one hand, there's the peace deal with the FARC. So the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, so this is this um, Marxist-Leninist group that had been fighting since the 60s. It's the longest running insurgency. 
it's kind of a lot of interesting stuff about the FARC that, you know, I know you kind of really like these individual guerrilla groups and there's a lot to talk about with the FARC about how they have women on the front line, which I think, as far as I'm aware, only the YPG in Syria have women that, that many women fighting on the front line. So they, by the end of it, they've, in their final last 20 years or so, by far the main source of income for the FARC has been what they call taxing coca sales. So that means in territory they control, farmers grow coca, and then from outside the cartels will come in, buy the coca, and then the FARC say they took a percentage, 10, 15%. Now the government say that the FARC was much more involved in trafficking cocaine, but just to lay it out, that's what both sides say. So the FARC is controlling much of the territory where the coca is. The part of this peace deal is is that the FARC will lay down their weapons but implicit in that is that for the first time in its history the Colombian government will arrive to the furthest corners of that country and impose a minimum of law and order they don't do it what happens is more narco militias turn up they take over it's like a, uh, they take over the coca because there's so much money that's one side and just a quick other thing there used to be aerial fumigation. Now, this is a kind of US-supported plan where these little planes would fly over, fumigating extensive tracts of coca fields. In about 2015, I think it was, the World Health Organization said that the herbicide that they had been using could cause cancer in people. So the Colombian government sort of was forced after the constitutional court said, you can't spray this anymore. So they took away one of their main tools in cutting coca, and so now we're dealing with this historic coca crop right okay well let's let's backtrack a little bit maybe you can uh, describe exactly who the fuck is and you know how they came to be what they're fighting for all of that so the fuck is i say they're starting in the 1960s and they come out of this tremendous bloody time in columbia's history which is literally just called the violence and it's this pits and this is uh, begins in the night um 19 it's in the 1940s 1950s and it pits liberals on the left with conservatives on the right and it's this just horrific bloodshed that goes on and it's entire towns were extinguishing uh the other side now it seems to be that a lot more violence came from the conservative side i think historians are kind of reevaluating that two sides throughout recent history it's always been oh well both sides were doing it recently people have suggested that the conservative uh, party was more bloodthirsty and kind of started the violence in many zones and the liberals would react. Either way, you had these roving bands by the end of it of these gunmen and they became like, they, they, they mixed this banditry with this political ideology. But, you know, these were not, they, it was just killing to kill. It was, I'm red, you're blue. Literally, those were the colours. Um, so, so you have this horrific kind of violence that kind of calms down. And then these peasants try to kind of set up their own kind of society, uh, Marcatalia, that's what they want to do. And then the government just isn't having it. So the government has this massive overreaction, tries to extinguish the whole thing, and the peasants just move into the mountains, and so is born the FARC. The FARC are highly ideological. That was the biggest thing everybody always got wrong about the FARC. They said that the FARC were corrupted by cocaine, perhaps, but they never lost sight of wanting a violent revolution to install a Marxist-Leninist dictatorship of the proletariat but their roots were always in the countryside and to be honest they never actually made good in the cities they've always at heart been this kind of this small farmers mentality and um yeah they became throughout so when you look at the, the 
Latin America in the 1980s, there's countless guerrilla groups across the region, Central America, South America, there's just too many to count. Then obviously the USSR collapses in 1989-1990, a vital source of funding, but also world leadership for these left-wing guerrilla groups has just disappeared. Cuba, which inspired so many of them, goes into what's called the special period, total starvation. They can't help out anymore. So you see peace break out with all of these guerrilla groups across the region kind of coming to deals with the government laying down the weapons, with the exception of the FARC, because the FARC were getting into cocaine, getting into taxing coca. So when everyone else was laying down the weapons, the FARC went through a massive expansion and they had this huge string of military successes in the 1990s. And really people thought the Colombian government could fall. It was a failed state and the FARC could possibly take power. So you get the Americans get a massive multi-billion dollar aid package called Plan Colombia at the turn of the century. And that stabilizes the government for a few years and then the government goes on the attack and has tremendous results, which finally ends up pushing the FARC to the negotiating table. Right, and let's talk a little bit about the tactics of the FARC and how, well, one of the things that really fascinates me is how like ingenious they were with smuggling and stuff like that. So they, I've seen this, uh, I read an article years ago about the cocaine submarines and, you know, big, like, large-scale clashes in the jungles. Like, maybe we can talk a little bit about that because, you know, I know, I, I agree 100% with you. They are, of course, like, very, you know, they're hardcore Marxist-Leninists, but they're also hardcore militants at this stage. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and they had this, um, they had this just that, in Colombia, the figure of the peasant is this kind of small farm, I should say. Well, peasant, because they're often, they're not landed. You know, there can be this really sly wisdom of the peasant, and Colombians recognize that. And this was brought to the forefront from some of these commanders. So the most famous military commander was this man called Mono Hohoy. And he was this big, fat dude, just a big man. And he was just adored by the FARC. He was seen as their military genius. And he would do these planning operations where they would take over entire small towns. They would just overrun these military bases. And he was tremendously successful. And he was, as I say, he was adored by the troops. I remember hanging out with um, some FARC and this was just before the peace process. Modahohoi had been killed in a bombing raid. Um, and they all had these stories as we were sharing beers at the end of the day. Um, they all had these stories about how they had, one had this hilarious story about how Modahohoi had these, what would they have been? I guess leopards. And he had these leopards as pets in these jungle camps. And the man was joking about how Monohoy came up to him and said, hey, you know, my pets have gone for a walk. Can you go get them? And he was saying, how the fuck am I supposed to go trap two leopards and bring them back? But he talked about how the leopards around Mono were like little cat, little kittens. Um, so, yeah, they had this tremendous success of uh, military um firm in military tactics you mentioned the cocaine submarines that wasn't that's not the FARC that's definitely more the cartel oh okay uh the FARC what they would do is we understand that some of the fronts here's my opinion again take it for what it's worth and there is this is not fixed this is not confirmed this is is still controversial my opinion is the central fronts of the FARC remained ideological but they encouraged some of the fronts on the margins next to the borders in the heavy cocaine zones to traffic cocaine and to then send those profits to the central the central organization which could 
have plausible deniability. By the end of it, I think that's what they were doing. So you had certain fronts that were just unmistakably narco. But, and they even had a culture of narco. Like some of them, there was a guy called El Negro Acacio, who was doing business with a very big Brazilian trafficker. And it just, he developed a kind of narco style, big gold chains, having prostitutes flown into his jungle camps. But again, the central command, I think, like to pretend that they were above that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You see it in a lot of militant groups all over the world, actually. And, you know, I've actually spoken to, I mean, I won't say who, but I've spoken to militants of certain groups that are like, look, it's we, we need to make money. So, you know, morality has to go on freeze whilst we fight the revolution. You know what I mean? Exactly. But the thing with cocaine is it corrupts everybody. And we've seen it with others as well. There's another marginal guerrilla group called the EPL. Now, Colombia, at this point, no one, I doubt there's anybody in in the world who could name every single militia operating in Colombia today because there's so many new ones have arrived since the peace process. But there's one called the EPL, which would be the the Popular Liberation Army, which is a Maoist-inspired group. Now, they're mainly up in northeastern Colombia. They're small, but they start when they they were the first to get heavily, heavily narco. And that's what you see. So at first, the philosophy is, all right, we need to get into trafficking for the revolution. But you know what? Quickly, it just everything begins to revolve around cocaine. And that's just like, you know, they keep telling themselves, oh, but this is for the revolution. But increasingly, they're trying to take over territory where where the cocaine's produced. And it becomes its own end just to make more and more and more money. And the EPL, now, I, I mean, they claim to be political, but I don't think anyone believes it. And I think that would happen with some commanders of the FARC. Again, I think the central command remain true to this revolutionary spirit. But as you say, they needed to make money. Yeah, um, and maybe you could tell us about the other groups in the area, because it's not just these. I, know, I mean, I know there's revolutionary groups, militant groups like um, FARC and the ELN as well, right? But there's also like narco, well, like gangs, right? They're doing it as well. This is something we don't really hear a lot about in Colombia, or at least not anymore. Exactly. So again, there's a kind of, I mean, there's you've got to separate these two experiences. So there's the countryside, uh, where you basically, I think it's better to talk about narco militias because these are men and women in uniforms, heavy armaments, AK-47s, um, and will indulge, will get into pitch battles where 10 people can be killed. When you move into the cities, it's more of kind of what we imagine the cartel system to be with gangs and armies of killers for hire who, you know, will use pistols and stuff like that or the occasional bomb. So out in the countryside, we're talking about narco militias, as you say. The ELN, the ELN for decades never touched cocaine. It, it just didn't. They made their money from kidnappings. Now, the, the ELN started in the 1960s, if I'm not wrong. Uh, 1960s? Yeah, I think they're developed in the 1960s. They took their inspiration from the Cuban Revolution. They had one of their most famous figures was uh, this priest, because remember, we've got liberation theology going through Latin America at this time, this kind of left-wing these priests who believed in a left-wing version of the Catholic. Um, and Camilo Torres was one of those. Um, and he was part of that liberation th theology. He joins the ELN uh, to kind of overthrow the corrupt um, oligarchy of Colombia. He's killed very early on. But anyway, th they develop, they have, they make their money through kidnappings, but also through um, blowing up oil pipelines. And in some cases, extorting the companies that are then forced to 
fix the oil pipelines. That was their massive act of like constant damaging the infrastructure to blow up oil pipelines. Oil is Colombia's number one export. But they never touched cocaine. But since the peace deal, they've been operating in zones that, and we now believe that they are up they are massively involved in cocaine. I went on a mission with the police to a cocaine laboratory. They said it was owned by the ELN. They said that could produce two to three tons of cocaine a month. That's the ELN. The EPL, as I said, were a kind of Marxist, uh, sorry, Maoist group. They're just totally narco. Their major figure was a man called Mega Dale, who was this figure that only could have been created in Colombia. Imagine a mix of Pablo Escobar, Robin Hood, and Che Guevara. And that's it, 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 yeah, he just only could, only in Colombia. He was born in the mountains and he ruled this zone called Catatumbo, where I spent a lot of time. Catatumbo is the indigenous uh, tongue for the land of lightning, because there's more lightning strikes in Catatumbo. It's right up on the border with Venezuela than anywhere else on the planet. He grew up there and he was, um, yeah, you know, he massively successful. And But what was curious, when I was hanging out with the cocoa farmers, they were all nostalgic for him. He was finally killed by the army. After he had inflicted a lot of casualties, he invested heavily in snipers. And these snipers threw out these just endless mountain ranges. You just get a sniper and make him comfortable, he can do a lot of damage. And you just have no idea where he's shooting from. The, the, option, the possibilities are endless. He did a lot of damage. They finally got him. But when I was with the coca farmers, they were all nostalgic. Why? Because... When the government can't do its job, when the government can't give you basic law and order, what you most hope for is that it's just going to be one militia, one criminal gang that rules over you. Because if it's two, that means it's war. And the peasants are always the first to die first. Because there's the old, the old story of Colombia is you own a farm in the mountains, far from anywhere, the FARC walk by and say, hey, could you sell us some water? You sell them some water, the army come the next day and say, hey, our informants say that you're supplying the rebels. You you can't win. So they always look for that. And they were so nostalgic for Megateo um, because now they're living in this nightmare of just so many different groups. Do you remember that um, Monty Python film, Life of Brian? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, a lot of people take the mick out of uh, the popular front name because of that scene. Of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's exactly. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Judean front of liberation. That's what Colombia can feel like. And then on top of all of these Marxist groups, then you've got the far right um, who are called the Urabenos, who have gone through, like nothing tells you the absurdity of the Colombian drug war than this group called who have gone through so many name changes because the government just keeps changing the name of this mafia, and I don't know why they do it. They were originally called the Urabenos, then the, which refers to a part of the country called Uraba, where they were originally from. The government said, all right, that is discriminatory to the people of Uraba. We're now gonna call them the clan Usaga, which was their, uh, their surname, Usaga. Then they decided, the president said, we've decided to change the name again because that is discriminatory to people who have that surname. Now we're going to call them the Gulf Clan Cartel. And that one's finally stuck. But um, now they're far right cocaine traffickers. They have an ideology that they claim to have a political ideology, but they don't really. I mean, they are far right in that they kill social activists because the cartels and drug traffickers have always opposed human rights activists and land activists because drug traffickers try to accumulate property. But the one important thing why they continue to claim a political ideology is because the position of the Colombian government is it won't negotiate with mafias. It won't negotiate with criminals. If you have a veneer of political ideology, even if you don't really believe it, 
look, it, it allows the government to say, all right, we can negotiate with you. So for any possible peace process in the future. So that's an important thing that they all hold on to. Uh, so you can be like a, a brutal mafia gang and just say like, oh yeah, we're uh, we're we're right wing fascists, and then the government can be like, oh okay, <laughs> you know, it's not negotiating with criminals anymore. Absolutely, and that's actually what happened with the far right death squads who were called the AUC. They had a peace process, um, which was about um, the uh, which was about two thousand five or so. The far right paramilitaries. So essentially, again, it goes back to this idea that much of Colombia outside the cities is this kind of lawless zones. The government just, no one pretends that the government runs a place like Catatumbo. But in the 90s, you had these farmers out in the um, out in the countryside and they were genuinely suffering extortion from the, um, from the guerrillas. You know, they couldn't, the guerrillas would turn up and say, hey, we're going to take 10% of your cows, whatever you can imagine, right, to raise funds for the revolution. So it, it radicalized the landowners. They became savagely far right because they had had these brutal experiences and if you didn't pay the um the extortion which in colombia is called the vaccine the vacuna if you didn't pay the vaccine the extortion they would kidnap you they would kidnap your parents there were horrible cases where the FARC just radicalized people because they would kidnap someone the person would die in captivity the FARC would continue to demand more ransom payments not tell the family and finally just say oh by the way yeah he died last year and so men and women were radicalized and they helped with drug traffickers form this far-right death squad the far-right death squad carried out the job that the army felt it couldn't i.e and it worked with parts of the army worked with parts of the police and local politicians in order to carry out a dirty war on the FARC's, in particular, the FARC's civilian base. They were looking for those people who lived in the towns and the AUC committed these massacres, these stomach-churning massacres where they would turn up to a town that was considered pro-FARC and they would carry out like, you know, 30 people would be killed in these massacres. And it was just every day there was new massacres across the country and it was this reign of terror. And that's what it was supposed to do. It was like, if you support the FARC, this is what we'll do. And, um, and they finally demobilized. Oh, but, but why I mention them is their top leadership were some of the biggest drug traffickers in Colombian history. There's one man who's actually bigger than, I would say, bigger than Pablo Escobar. There's a man, your listeners should check out, Don Berner. This is a tremendously powerful man. I'll tell you, you want to know power. I would visit Medellin when he was still the king of the underworld there. If you were in public, and the subject of Don Berner came up, involuntarily, you would lower your voice. I don't care where you were sitting, because you never knew who around you. No one else have I ever seen that. I myself would catch myself doing it. I'd be sitting in a bar and I'd say, oh, so, hey, what's what's going on with Don Berner? And I would, because that, I've never seen that in my life. And I was just like, wow, I'm, I, I'm in, you know, I'm reacting to this man's power as much as anyone else. He's actually, in, uh, so he's this tremendously important trafficker. He helped bring down Pablo Escobar, then basically ruled the Medellin underworld until 2008 when he was extradited to the US. He's currently in prison here. When I spoke to traffickers in my book, I said, hey, what happens if Don Berner comes back? They said, yeah, everybody would make way for him. What makes him so powerful? I think they just see him as a natural leader. Again, everybody is constantly looking for a leader. Like I mentioned the, the farmers, they want a single king 
a single king or queen it's always men you know in in colombia is quite a machista machismo uh, society machista society so um the underworld in medellin desperately wants that as well i interviewed this drug trafficker and what he wanted to see was he wanted to see a war because he said too many independent traffickers had emerged and so he just so for him it was kind of like herding cats drug traffickers just go every single way so there's no unity there's no they can't get anything done because there's no single king to give the order so he said life under don burner was better so a lot of these traffickers are actually hoping to return to some sort of order cocaine is total chaos and that's what you're seeing men and women always trying to do find order in the chaos of cocaine because it's endless money it's instant death and that creates this dark weird environment so it's this constant search for order yeah um talking about order you you've been into these areas where the militias the cocaine militias and the, the revolutionary militias rather the fuck you've been into these areas where they have control what's it like there do, do they actually have like 100 percent control and do the locals actually like living under them or do they just tolerate it or what yeah no that's a really good question and um to be honest it's something that i don't think people are well enough aware of the relationship between the FARC and the local uh, peasants is so interesting and there's pressure, gentle pressure exerts from both because the FARC genuinely look at themselves as sons and daughters of the small farmers, the peasants. And these peasants can have tremendous sway with them and they'll just say, look, you know, you need to change this. The FARC themselves also will be the only order. And this applies for a lot of the narco militias and the gangs in places like Medellin. Because the state is absent, the FARC have to take over stuff like, um, the FARC have to take over just settling disputes between neighbors. The FARC will, in some zones, at the request of local women, the FARC in certain parts of the country have outlawed booze alcohol sales why because the farmers would get drunk on a friday night and go home and beat their wives so the wives said to the FARC leaders and the FARC would uh, would do that the FARC would also regulate for instance if a town was getting too um there were too many machete fights the town the FARC would have these rules about well if you're going to come to the dance on a friday you have to leave your machetes outside so they were instituting these things and especially when they took over the coca towns this is so in the coca zones all of the farmers will turn their coca leaves into something called cocaine paste which is one stop short of pure cocaine but it's now a block it's a kilo it's a recognizable kilo it needs some more treatment to turn it into cocaine but that's what it's been converted into so these farmers will pop that in a backpack and they'll go into town and that's where they sell them now these coca zones these coca towns are like the old west imagine the old west the gold rush but instead of gold it's cocaine and a lot more ak-47s it's totally lawless prostitutions everywhere there's so much money swirling around in these coca towns that prostitutes have chartered planes to fly from the city to get to these deep jungle towns because they know they they know they'll make their money back in a weekend the money's just flowing everywhere and the prostitutes just live there for six months as long as they can take it because these are wild places death is everywhere now the FARC would come in and they would see this social decay and I remember one guerrilla commander telling me that he, he just he was he said you know this is a man with lots of military experience uh Fabian Ramirez he's a, another really interesting character who really the military came to hate because of how 
sly and cunning he was with his tactics. But he was telling me that he couldn't believe it, that he was resolving fights between prostitutes. <laughs> I mean, he was like, what am I doing here? You know? And that's one, one of the things when he said, yeah, I was resolving this these fight between these prostitutes. And I was like, yeah, you know what? We need to get paid for doing this. This is the why we tax the coca. We are we are organizing the lives of these people in this town um, and we need to we need to get paid for it that's interesting when when they say um, when they say taxing the coca though like what it what does that really mean because you know the the dissident groups of the the IRA what's I mean they're not really IRA but you know what I mean the ones that call themselves IRA look these dissidents in Northern Ireland they say oh yeah we're taxing the drug dealers what they're really doing is generally getting rid of the small-time dealers. You know, they'll, they'll kneecap a 14-year-old boy for selling a couple bags, you know what I mean? But the big dealers always stay, you know, on top. I guess what my question is, is, is fuck, like, are they really taxing the big guys or are they the big guys? No, so again, there's the, there's the before and after the peace deal. So before the peace deal, they really were taxing, they were taxing everybody. They were, again, in the central part where the central command was, they were happily doing this where they would take 10% of a coca sale. So someone would come in, a trafficker would come in because the FARC said, look, we've got this territory. Everything's taking place in our territory. You need to pay the money. Um, and yeah, that's what would happen. On the margins, again, I think the FARC were actively trafficking themselves. But again, leaving the leadership of deniable responsibility. We also have dissidents now in Colombia. They're literally called the dissidents. These are about 10% of the FARC who decided not to accept the peace deal. Some of them actually accepted the peace deal and grew disenchanted with it because the government lost interest in the peace deal. That's the untold story of this. It was the government that at every major step following the signature of that peace deal just kind of lost interest, didn't fulfill its obligations. And you had these men and women sitting there and saying, oh, this is not what I anticipated. What we all hoped was, were we were going to see the oldest enemies hugging, shaking hands. But no, the, the peace process became politicized and it became just another polarizing issue. 50% on one side, 50% on another. Well, that meant kind of reintegration of these far guerrillas became really difficult. So a lot of them just said, all right, screw it. And then went back to the jungle now they are heavily into drug trafficking there's no no one thinks that the dissidents have that 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 kind of that 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 firewall no the dissidents are absolutely involved in trafficking overseeing the production and trafficking cocaine and they justify it by saying hey we need to raise money quickly and we need to fight this revolution again they still claim to it but i don't think anyone truly believes that the dissidents are really wedded to this ideology not like the FARC again I repeat too, too many people said oh the FARC lost their ideology that just wasn't my experience I found them deeply committed to the idea and they were I mean the FARC were genuinely interesting in the middle of the jungle the FARC would create these classrooms where they would teach men and women who hadn't had a chance of schooling they would teach them to read they would teach them to write if you go and everyone i would invite them to go look at the logo of the farc look closely it's two ak-47s crossed and underneath it a book and that's the kind of commitment to self-education but also violent revolution yeah no definitely i mean i've done a fair bit of research myself on the farc and whilst i'm not particularly a fan of their ideology you know like hardcore marxist leninism i believe from what i've read you know what i mean that they're certainly 
that's their main focus. It seems to me to be their main focus. Now, yeah, I get it. They're involved in criminality. They're involved in all of this stuff. But, you know, <laughs> how else they going to get their, their um, vision? Um, but yeah, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this, uh, this peace deal then. How did that all come about? Because that was absolutely huge. You wrote about it in the start of your book, Kilo, which is amazing, by the way. And, you know, I know that's kind of all fallen apart by now, but how did it start? Well, so it goes back to this Plan Columbia. Now, Plan Columbia, again, is such <laughs> such a different time because Plan Columbia is pre 9-11. So Plan Columbia, there's this whole thing about, oh, my God, the Americans are going to have another Vietnam. That's what everyone was talking about. So Plan Columbia originally is, all right, we're just going to. And so the Democrats, I think mainly Democrats, I'm guessing it was Democrats, were emphatic about that this this aid wasn't to be used against the FARC they didn't want America being dragged into someone else's civil war so it could only be against used against the cocaine cartels well those restrictions were eventually taken off and the full plan Colombia was really directed against the FARC themselves and the FARC basically hang on and at the same time now we have this you can't understand Colombian recent history without understanding the role of President Álvaro Uribe. He's elected in 2002. This is when basically all every all of the billions and billions of US aid is now ready to be used. So Uribe really actually just inherits this gift. So everything's now ready. Every pilot's been um every pilot's been trained, the Black Hawks are ready, the Air Force is ready and they let loose this rule. Uh, so, Sorry, just one step back. The FARC had been involved in peace negotiations with the previous government before, from like about 1998 to 2002, if I'm not wrong. That was when the government gave them this Switzerland-sized zone in the country, this demilitarized zone where the FARC ran things. Remember, people from Wall Street went there to explain to the FARC the benefits of capitalism. But the peace deal eventually failed. So now Plan Colombia comes along. And... Basically, the FARC hang on, hang on. They suffer terribly. Remember, the FARC was such a large organization. They would have units of five, six hundred guerrillas would march all night to get to a town and then launch an attack. Well, what happened was, obviously, the infrared cameras, the satellites are picking this up and the FARC were devastated by air power more than anything. So the FARC changed their tactics. They obviously opt for much smaller units. Immediately you see that because there's videos out there of these columns of 500 getting hit by repeated bombs. I mean, it's just brutal. So the FARC changed their tactics. And now obviously that limits their ability to inflict. So it becomes a much more traditional guerrilla run, hit and run, hit and run. Right? 2008 is this turning year. The FARC up to that point, I don't think had ever lost a commander a senior commander in battle and then they just start falling like dominoes it's just it's it's just brutal um th there's raul regis who was the face of the farc the head of the pr um i think that same year manuel marulanda is killed um it's also the year of that operation checkmate where the colombian authorities tricked or bribed the farc commanders into releasing some of the most prominent hostages they were holding, uh, including uh, former presidential candidate Ingrid Bethencourt and three American defense contractors, as well as a bunch of other civilian politicians. And I do want to just say one word about the FARC's kidnapping. The FARC were ideological, but they were also 
out by themselves in the middle of the jungle and sometimes they were mad as fucking hatters because they had no one to talk to so they just was the ultimate echo chamber so they convinced themselves that well uh when our comrades are imprisoned are arrested by the police they get sent to prison so this is our version of prison it's like this is horrific jungle captivity and they didn't see the problem with it they said oh our, our comrades are in prison we're just doing the same and i was like you you would say they they turned off so many people because of they wouldn't drop the kidnapping and i know that that leftists would just say look we understand the farc are fighting a corrupted rancid um that's what the leftists would say in europe they'd say that this corrupted concentrated oligarchy in colombia but i can't get behind a group that kidnaps civilians and trades in cocaine I, you would hear that constantly and the FARC just would never ever acknowledge it. their constant refrain was you don't understand our situation so 2008 is the turning point all of these um, things happen and that's really and then it takes a few more years the FARC are just punished and pushed further and further and further back into the mountains and then these peace talks develop I think it's about four years of peace talks in Havana and that culminates in the signing uh, in 2016 of this peace deal and we see about I can't remember the exact figure, but it's roughly around 10,000 FARC guerrillas uh, lay down their weapons. Right. Tell us about that ceremony. You were there in the mountains when that all got kind of signed into law, right? Exactly. So, I mean, it was kind of funny because the Colombians, the Colombian government understood that there had been, it was this weird thing. So the Colombian government had spent decades, the official line was narco-terrorists for the FARC. The FARC don't believe in anything. The FARC are the most evil people on earth. And look, that's just natural in a propaganda war. But then at some point in another, the government realized, oh, well, now we actually need to convince the population that we should be signing a peace deal with them instead of hunting them to the ends of the earth. So they, But they just got it wrong. So what they were doing is they tried their own propaganda, which was to have multiple signings. And I remember trying to sell one story and the editor said, Mate, I'm just fucked out, you know, because there had been like five or six of these signings. I was there, though, for this historic uh, 10th conference of the FARC. The FARC, again, it goes back to how how serious they took this. They would have these conferences that were, um, where guerrillas, the lead guerrillas from across the country would be expected to come and they would debate the future of the FARC. The 10th conference was, will the guerrillas accept this peace deal or not? And so there's endless debates between the FARCs, between the FARC people, that was closed off. And then finally it's announced that yes, the FARC had voted en masse to approve the peace deal. That was in the beginning of September. And I think the signing, I had to get out to give you an idea of how treacherous the landscape is of Colombia. It took me just under 24 hours to get from where the FARC had their 10th conference in the middle of nowhere, back to Bogota. And that was, I think, 300 kilometers if i'm not wrong and that took under just under 24 hours to traverse in trucks that's how bad colombia is there's no roads in many of these parts of the outside and then i think i spent one night in my home in bogota and flew to the caribbean city of Cartagena for the signing and this is where the leader of the farc the then leader timochenko and the president of colombia juan manuel santos signed um this deal but again the tragedy of this the peace process had already been politicized. So even I think, I mean, I remember the 1997, uh, what is it, Good Friday. That was widespread optimists, optimism. I'm sure there were critics on the side, but essentially, certainly in England, I remember 
that everybody was kind of behind this. There could be critics, but it wasn't this kind of 50-50 split. Nah, people generally wanted it to end and were like, yeah, this is good. Exactly. The peace process in Colombia became much closer to, say, something like Brexit. Oh, really? Yeah. It, and again, it was in the same year. And I was, so we saw Brexit happen. And that was the joke amongst all of this. Brexit and then the whole, well, even that joke, hold my beer, right? The Colombians, remember, voted against the peace, ref, uh, the peace deal in a referendum. It had been so hopelessly politicised and um, opponents of the peace deal had sort of cottoned on to this. They had inserted in this language, in, I'm trying to remember what the context was, but they had inserted the language into the peace deal of like that gender terms had to be acknowledged and supported. Gender studies, kind of this kind of language, which was this kind of academic language, which I'm not really sure where it came from. The opponents, the right wing in Colombia started saying, oh, this means that they're gonna teach your children how to be homosexual. And Colombia can be, you know, the education system is not great in many parts of Colombia. And it's, uh, you know, it, and so a lot of people fall for that kind of stuff. So they voted against the peace deal. So they signed the peace deal. And I remember from the book, like thousands of guerrillas came to vote on it, right? It wasn't just the head saying, yeah, this is how it happens. Exactly. And it was this beautiful moment that they had marched from, some of them had spent two weeks marching to get to this thing. And this is the thing about the FARC is they're so distinctive. It's so interesting especially the women they have these huge thighs because they're such masters of marching and it's this guerrilla diet high on carbs because that's what they need they can perform these astonishing marches because you i mean the, the alps have nothing on colombia these mountains are just endless and you have to go up one go down one up one go down one and they'll just do it without complaining so they would spend weeks marching and it was this beautiful moment they were setting up all of these um concerts at night so the FARC the rule of the FARC is you can never be without your uh, gun so they would put their AK-47s like on the floor and dance next to it because that's <laughs> they still couldn't there was even stuff called you can look on YouTube the stuff called what is it the um the dance of the gorilla where I think they kind of hold their AKs and they dance around it. There's a whole culture behind being in the FARC. I've got friends on Facebook and one of them during this quarantine, she's saying, hey, you know, so I guess I, anyone who's interested, I'm going to do a Facebook live and teach you gorilla recipes. This is what we used to eat in the, and there's, she's really nostalgic for it, you can tell. Um, but yeah, so thousands come in, they all vote. And it was this really optimistic side though. It was, Colombia had been held back by this civil war. Because the major problem in Colombia, I would say, is corruption. It's corruption to the biggest and this cocaine trade. The Civil War was always the third problem. But the FARC just were the easiest boogeymen, self-inflicted. The FARC themselves would just would not, were just were their own worst enemy so many times. But as long as the FARC were there, Colombia didn't have to reckon with its major problems of corruption. The politicians were happy. They could always just blame the FARC. Whatever happened, the FARC would do something stupid, some atrocity, they would put some bomb where they shouldn't have put, and the, any corruption investigation would kind of fade into the background, and now everyone would just be sh shouting and screaming at the FARC. So once you took the FARC out of that, Colombia was like, hey, we can progress, we can start to tackle the issues at the bottom of this, the corruption, the drugs trade. And it felt optimistic, unlike I had ever seen it. And then... It just kind of, the piece, you know, unraveled. There's now been 130, if I'm not wrong, guerrillas have been murdered since the peace deal. These are the far right death squads again, operating in the shadows, selectively killing these demobilized guerrillas. And it's just, you know, there's parts of the country 
where these new narco militias have been born, places like Tumaco, which is on the border with Ecuador, uh, Norte de Santander, Catatumbo on the border with Venezuela, Chocó on the border with Panama, where you go there and people say, you know what, this peace is even worse for us than the war. The violence has been so much worse right now than it was. Right, so as a part of this peace deal, the stipulations were what? That the FARC lay down their weapons, stop the war, and they get, what, amnesty from the government? They won't be, you know, captured or what? Exactly. So, I mean, it's still kind of different. There's kind of crimes against, yeah, essentially that. And that was a whole thing that about how much time should the FARC spend in prison. And this was left deliberately vague. So the opponents of the peace deal said this has been, and look, there were legitimate criticisms. I don't want to be unfair to it. There were legitimate criticisms, I think, good faith criticisms from people who said, look, we believe that this is too lenient on the FARC. And that's that's a debate to have. That's a good faith debate people can have. But there were also, but the peace deal was supposed to be so much more than that. It was supposed to be about the beginning of a new Colombia. It was the FARC demanding that the government build infrastructure. That's a kind of abstract word. What I mean is roads, bridges. I mean, I was out with the FARC when they were still fighting we watched them build a road because the government wouldn't do it. I mean, when I was in a coca zone, to give you an idea of how absent the government can be, I when I was recent, I went to a coca zone, again in Catatumbo, and I was sitting in this settlement, it's not even a village, a settlement, like literally three houses kind of within 100 meters of each other, and they pointed to the school they had built. It cost them roughly $10,000. They had set up a toll on this dirt track that only horses and motorbikes could go along. It took them three years to raise the money to build that school. The government wasn't didn't pay for it. It was the farmers themselves. And how did they have the money to pay that toll? Coca, cocaine. So when you've got a situation where cocaine is funding the building of schools, man, you're fucked. I mean, you know, that's that's not great. So the government, the peace deal was supposed to be this, to kind of bring law and order and a minimum of healthcare, a minimum of education and infrastructure across the planet, across the country, and try to kind of, you know, bring the countryside out of the misery that it lives in, in some parts of that country. Right. And so why did it fall apart? Is it a case of the government just went, we're not building that stuff we promised to build, or they're slow or whatever? Or is it because of the murders of the guerrillas? Because I have read a little bit about these areas you're saying, and I, certainly over a year ago now, I remember reading the same thing. Uh, it might be one of your pieces, actually, but they were like locals were saying it was way better when the guerrillas were here. Um, so how did it end up like that so quickly? I, I mean, I think it's a combination of all of those things. I think it was the kind of the government just kind of I, when they lost that peace referendum. I think it knocked the government just they were punch drunk for a while and I think they had to then kind of quickly get behind this idea to save the actual very formal the the deal itself and so the actual details they kind of lost track on it was just we need to save the deal in the abstract rather than believing that the deal was a deal that was supposed to be implemented from the ground up and on so many levels they 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 just didn't the government didn't fulfill its obligations I'll give you an example there's many ways of tackling the coca problem. By far, and it's been proven time and time again, the best way is something called voluntary crop substitution, right? And it sounds exactly what it is. You basically work with the farmer and you say, all right, I'll pay you a stipend. This is how it worked in Colombia. I'll pay you a stipend every month and I'll give you two one-off payments over the course of two years. 
and that is to help the stipend gets your family through this as you rip out the cocoa as soon as you rip out all of your cocoa we start paying the stipend will feed your family the one-off payments two of them will help you build a new um you know a new project so you're you know cattle or chickens whatever right when you do that plan with farmers i think the success rate is something like 99 percent when you go in there and manually eradicate so basically there's another part of my book where i go with the police as they go through these zones and they physically rip the coca out and just kind of leave nothing behind i think the replanting rate is something like 30 or 60 percent. i can't remember which but it's high and it's within a question of weeks they they're replanting so the, there was this pilot plan in this municipality called Brisenio and I went there and the farmers told me that they were surprised as anyone when the government said this pilot plan for the voluntary crop substitution will take place here they were so proud these farmers this tiny little town in the mountains had been forgotten and they all decided they all thought of themselves as like setting an example for the rest of Colombia they ripped out every single crop of coca not one bush left in that municipality the stipends all started all good after about the first year though no everyone's getting problems with their um with their project money the stipend is actually all paid out but they never get enough of that money to actually buy new seeds or start something new so they're surviving but they're not they're not creating something for the future and in the end it just most people didn't get their money and that was a story replayed across the country and i went there and spoke to the farmers there and he said we ripped out all of our coca we were trying to get something new in but it turns out we ended up with neither and he talked about everyone suffering hunger starvation young kids were starting to rob other kids were leaving the town to go somewhere else and you saw that just time and time again the government just didn't fulfill its obligations right so so all the so this is falling apart and a lot of the FARC, like you said, well, some of them have got these dissidents, dissident groups have gone back to arms. Um, I read about one of the specific commanders not long ago actually started up his own little group. But anyway, why is it that the, the core then of the um, FARC have decided to, you know, stay calm, if you like? You know, they haven't gone back to war yet, from what I understand. No, and they won't. I mean, when you look at people like Timochenko and the and the the leaders who have stayed with, because again, I mean, it's they really do believe it's a project of. They've kept the FARC as a name of a political party, and they're now wedded to the idea of trying to enact the FARC's aims, but without the gun. Um, and so they are committed to that project. I think. I mean, I think for a lot of the older men and women, I mean, they all sound nostalgic for the jungle, and I'm sure, but that's a brutal life out there in the jungle. And, you know, they've the constant fear of bombing raids. So, you know, I think living in Bogota or living in Cali or Medellin can be more um, conducive to a... Uh, that, but that would be my speculation. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're committed. They say they're committed to the goals of the FARC, but now they have embraced um, working within a within the democracy so far the FARC has done terribly at the opinion um in elections I mean I they've done worse than I would have thought I thought they would start with low votes and possibly uh get better because here's the thing and this is why it was I mean it's it's difficult to recapture that optimism everyone had when I went to one of their camps they were still negotiating they hadn't signed yet one of the commanders said to me look this is going to be our political uh, the way we'll do politics he said, right now, what I do is I tell these boys and girls, I say, hey, go out and ambush the army. I'll send them there. 
What I'll do when we're a political party is I'll tell them, hey, boys and girls, go to that, go to that slum and why don't you um, and set up a, a water system? Go to that slum and put in electricity for the people. Go to that, go to that little town and build a bridge for these people. And that's the way we'll win the people's uh, affection and we'll show them we are working for the people. That seemed to me such an interesting approach to uh, politics in a place like Colombia. But again, the people, the peace process didn't take off the way it was. A lot of the men, the younger men and women were kind of, you know, I think some of them, once you join the FARC, you always join the FARC for life. So I think a lot of them, once they got the chance to go to a city, actually didn't want to go back to the jungle camps, didn't want to live with their comrades anymore. They wanted to strike out on their own. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's where you kind of uh, had this thing and you've just seen this kind of slow breakdown of the FARC. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, from what you're saying, it sounds like A, certain members got a little bit too comfortable and B, like like you said, oh, well, I would tell this group to go and ambush, you know, the military there and then tell them to go and build something in the slum. Well, doing a quick in and out ambush, as chaotic as it is, is a hell of a lot easier to sustain than constantly doing building projects here, there and everywhere. Do you know what I mean? It's not quite the same thing, I imagine. No, absolutely. You're right. And I mean, I was and actually to, it's, what, what you highlight is very true. And friends of mine, I was kind of like, wow, this sounds amazing. But I remember when I repeated this to a friend, he said, all right, that's very good. But how are they going to fund this? And as you're cottoning on to exactly the logistics of it. Again, I think the FARC were contemplating, you know, I mean, they were kind of used to a bit of coca money at this point. That, you know, there wasn't going to be any more coca money. That was just absolutely not going to happen. Uh, there wasn't going to be any more coca money after this. Um, and that was also at the time when the FARC had been very close with Venezuela. And the Venezuela hadn't entered into its free fall that we've seen in the last couple of years, at least. So I think they hope that they may be able to count on some money from Venezuela. Um, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, at the moment, the FARC are just absolutely marginal in terms of pol politics. Um, I think they've got some seats in Congress still, I think, although I'm not sure. Um, right. And so we're how many years into the, the peace process now? Sorry. So it was signed in 2016. That was the beginning when they were. And then there was a back and forth about when they would actually hand over their arms. But um, yeah, so 2016. And again, just... God, it was those days were so beautiful when people would do stories about the military hospital in Bogota. Now, one of the FARC's, obviously, one of the FARC's main tactics was uh, mines, landmines, right? Typical guerrilla um, guerrilla operations. So the military hospital, I did various stories there, was just the scene of these horrific mutilations of these soldiers and police. Horrific. Uh, I mean, just, this, you know, it's just heartbreaking. There was one whole story did, uh, done, someone did about soldiers who had lost their genitals and just what that does to these men who had wives waiting for them back home. I mean, it's just, it doesn't get any crueler than that. But then 2016, the occupancy rate was down by 97%. Young soldiers and the Colombian conflict has always, always, always been the poor fighting the poor poor guerrillas fighting poor soldiers and poor uh, police and the middle class and the upper middle class have always dodged that war there used to be um, military conscription and it was absolutely legalized corruption that everybody knew you had to pay around seven hundred dollars and you got out of uh, that i can't even remember how they justified it it was just purely on the face of it total 
unfair. So the rich never fought that war. It was always sending the poor soldiers to fight poor guerrillas. But to see those soldiers' lives saved was, it was moving. And then just to see us slide slowly back to that conflict is just so depressing. It's so, because I think once you get your hopes up and to see that, if you never get your hopes up, okay, you can deal with the nihilism. I think there's even a joke by that um, John Cleese makes in one of his films. He said, the despair I can handle, it's the hope I can't deal with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so true. So so it's four years in now. I mean, obviously, officially, it's still there. But do you think it's safe to say it's basically finished? It's a failure? Or is it not quite there yet? No, I mean, look, I'll say informally that I think it's been a failure. But I, I mean, it, there is still... There are parts of the country where it's worked out much, much better. For instance, places like Meta, places like Guaviare. I think certain parts of the um, country haven't been afflicted so badly. Um, and that can, they can legitimately be proud of that. And the FARC themselves, they basically got 90% to lay down their weapons. So in terms of the bare minimum, it actually did its job. The FARC did lay down their weapons. The FARC did demobilize. But it was supposed to be this kind of the foundation of a new Colombia. And in that case, it has not achieved its uh, its promise. Yeah, like it did its job for the government, but not so much for the people. And the guerrillas. And that's why I get impatient with the guerrillas as well when they say, oh, what a great peace process this has been. It was never about you. It was never about just you, the FARC. This was about the, 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 the communities, exactly as you said, the people. The people, especially in the countryside. Because the army, the, the Colombia's conflict had really ceased to exist in the major cities from... You know, I mean, it just it, it just hasn't been in Bogota, Cali or Medellin for, I mean, I would say at least 15 years. The odd bomb would go off, but very, very rarely. It wasn't like when I first got there, entire neighborhoods would be under the control of the FARC or the ELN. Essentially, that had ended uh, by 2005, 2006, mainly by the far right death squads, by the way. That was what they would do. They would move in to these neighborhoods and just slaughter anybody who was associated or even suspected. So the role of the far right death squads in weakening the FARC, any history of the any history of how the FARC were weakened that does not include a massive part about the far right death squads is an incomplete history. The far right death squads were hugely important in weakening the FARC. It wasn't just the Colombian army. Right, and you said that the um, a lot of former guerrillas, I think you said over a hundred, have been murdered by these, you know, far-right death squads now. I mean, who are they? Who's leading them? Has that got anything to do with the government or narco gangs or who is it? It's narcos, yeah. It's mainly narcos, but not always. I mean, one guerrilla was murdered by um, by the army. It was this this horrific case where... Um, this was up in Norte de Santander, Catatumbo, where, again, I had spent some time researching the coca. Um, it was this very, just really bad case where they stopped this guerrilla at a kind of checkpoint, a lonely checkpoint. They took him away to a kind of provisional army outpost base and they kind of, it was very weird. And anyway, the people, the local people all caught word of this and they demanded entrance to this outpost and they just kind of walked in and they found them desperately trying to dig a grave for this dead guerrilla. Some of the soldiers, what we think happened was that the soldiers were just, um, they, they have their own memories of they want revenge. Again, this was a very nasty war. I mean, I guess it goes without saying, but there was a level of viciousness in this war. And I guess some of these soldiers thought that they weren't happy just to see these guerrillas just walk away from the conflict. So they killed him. Um, mainly, though, it is by these narco militias, especially, again, going back to the Gulf clan cartel. Um, 
they're the kind of people who you know um who are uh, yeah who are killing this and again they'll claim it's for political reasons but you know sometimes it's just to remove any sort of opposition to them yeah so you said that um the coke business now in colombia is the biggest it's ever been despite this uh, peace process why is that again it goes back to the idea of one of the major tools that the um that the government had was aerial fumigations they can't do that since 2015 but it was also just the government's inability to arrive to take over all of this coca um that the farc left when the farc put down their weapons and these narco militias have come in and if anything in parts that they've taken over the narco militias have told the farmers to plant even more. Now, what's interesting is, is that the region I went to, um, the, the farmers were complaining that essentially they were receiving the same amount of money in 2018 when I was there that they were receiving 15 years before, r- roughly three, $400 for a kilo of coca paste. So they were all sick of the business and I had never seen them so sick of the business because all of their other costs have gone up, but they're still receiving the same amount. Why is that? Because they live in a town where they're forced to sell to one person and they can't sell to anyone else, otherwise they'll be killed. So when you take out any element of competition, of course, if it's a monopoly buyer, they in they impose the price. But what it means is, is that these farmers would take anything. It, there's this historic opportunity for the government to step in the farmers want out of this they just want to be given some sort of legitimate alternative that will get them out of this because once you get into a life of coca i mean it's a downer man i mean and they've kind of lived through a whole generation of this because once you're in coca you if anything happens to you you can no longer go to the police no the people who run this are the narco militias they dictate your life if you're in the world of coca, it's all violent. There's a social decay that hits your towns. And people, you can tell people just get... And there's not even the money there. All of these things you could tolerate when the money was good. Now, if the money's bad, then, you know, what are you getting out of this? Wow, that sounds absolutely awful. Um, so who is the main group doing this? Is there like one big group? or you know, I know you said about the Gulf Clan. Um, but surely there's got to be, you know, many different factions here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what I mean. Like, if you had asked me five years ago, like, to name all of the guerrilla groups in Colombia, I could have done it. Now, as I say, I don't think anyone could. I mean, there are parts of the country where there's multiple groups fighting for control, these newly born groups that are fighting, especially the dissidents, because the FARC dissidents haven't been united. So I think that's an important difference, perhaps, with Northern Ireland, I think the dissidents immediately, if I'm remembering this correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially the dissidents were already a unified faction, right? Yeah, they were like um, spin-offs from the provisional IRA. I mean, certainly now they're all over the shop. But yeah, initially it was like, okay, we're this part of the PIRA that don't want the, the Good Friday Agreement. So now we're the real IRA and then continuity IRA and... You know, there was a joke at the time there was um there was this advert on the TV in the UK and it was about margarine and it was called I Can't Believe It's Not Butter because it was meant to taste like butter. So then people used to start calling the dissident groups I Can't Believe It's Not the IRA because there were just so many, you know. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, what you are, if you're talking about, yeah, so Colombia's actually been the reverse. So it, basically what happened is we're now at the stage where every localized area has its own version of the dissidents. They're not united at all. Now, there have been, the I mean, to get into this, there has been a, 
a couple of them were being investigated for drug trafficking and it looked like they were going to be extradited. So some of the more senior leaders, again, these were always men who were just kind of on the outside who thought that they would be prosecuted as part of the peace deal. They have formed, that's the most official kind of, but they're kind of irrelevant. We all think they're hanging out in Venezuela. There's a bunch of old men and women. The main dissidents, it's all, every local area has its own version of the dissidents and they're just local commanders. There's no central. The, the Gulf clan cartel is the largest narco militia and the largest cartel operating in South America. And it's a kind of interesting history. It's, it emerges from that peace process with the far-right death squads back in 2005, 2006. Essentially, why that peace deal was so bad is because the government said, all right, we're going to do this peace, peace deal with you, but they're only really going to interview the absolute commanders. They told the mid-range commanders, just go home. Go home and just, you know, be good. Now, it's the actual mid-range commanders who are there on the beach at midnight overseeing, stacking the boat with the tons of cocaine. It's the mid-range commanders who are planning and participating that ambush on your enemies. These are men of intelligence and they're capable. So these were actually the most dangerous men these were the men you needed to kind of bring into this peace process, give them options. Instead, the government said, gave them a bit of money. So on parts of the Caribbean coast, all of them went out and bought motorcycles and became motor taxis. Like every single motor taxi you got on on the Caribbean coast, you'd say, oh, what are you? And they'd say, oh yeah, I'm down from the mountains, which is a euphemism. You knew what it meant. So they just, these towns would have like, like 2,000 motor taxis. You would get off a bus and there would be 500 men just on a motor taxi waiting for the one fare. So these were easy recruits for anyone who was a malicious state of mind. So some mid-range commanders went home. These were the Usaga brothers and another man called Don Mario. Again, not, these are a bunch of names, but essentially they formed this new cartel out in the Darien Gap, Uraba, which is one of the most dense and unexplored parts of the world. So we have something called the Pan American Highway, right? So in theory, you can drive, I believe, from Alaska all the way down to Chile, except the Darien Gap. They, various times, it's the one part where the, there is a gap in that Pan American Highway. It's just this tremendously uh, um, ominous jungle. They started, they came out of there. Um, Otoniel is the present leader of the, um, of the Gulf clan cartel. His nickname is Otoniel. And this is the funny thing that uh, I, as I wrote more and more about cocaine. She has a sense of humor. Otoniel could be one of the richest men on the continent, but his life we understand is on the back of a donkey, every day he's transferred from one crappy wooden shack to another crappy wooden shack in one of the wettest, rainiest places on the planet, all in order to stay away one step ahead of the CIA, the uh, Colombian police and the Colombian army. The CIA are actively pursuing Otoniel as well. We know that the CIA has flown to, uh, the head of the CIA in 2018 flew to Colombia to announce their participation in hunting him down. So he has all of this money and that's his life. <laughs> just, I mean. I think I'd rather just go to prison. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately though, he knows the deal. And, you know, once he's into the prison system, you know, there's a chance that he'll be, um, that he'll be killed. I mean, it, it, his, it, and when I would interview these traffickers, I would ask them, hey, tell me about Otoniel. They said, yeah, you know, he's got six months. Now, that was two years ago, but, you know, it's a matter of time. No one thinks Otoniel. And Otoniel has actually tried to set up a peace deal. Um, he sent out this video. And again, these are very, this is the thing about the black market that got me even more thinking. 
These men, Otoniel, El Chapo, Al Capone, these are not remarkable men. What they are, though, is they're vicious, they're ambitious, they're greedy, they're violent, and they thrive in a black market that our policies create. When we made alcohol illegal, we created, we turned unremarkable men like Al Capone into very, we turned monsters into millionaires. The war on cocaine does the same. El Chapo is not a remarkable man. But in this black market, he thrives because a black market needs those qualities. Viciousness, violence, merciless, ruthless. That's, I mean, in normal society, these men aren't going anywhere because they're not, again, they're not remarkable people. And I think that's the, that's the damage we do to ourselves when we carry on this drug war. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I don't want to get too much into like, should this be legal? Should that be legal? But I do think when you create a black market, like you said, the people that win, it's just the people that are willing to go the furthest. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean they're particularly smart. It doesn't mean they're particularly charming or whatever. It's just how far are you willing to go? Are you going to go all the way? And if you are, like you said, you get chapos, you get, um, you know, all of these, all of these big, big violent guys. Um, I won't keep you too long, but this is so fascinating to me. One thing I do want to ask though is how. So, so when these guys pick the cocaine out of the ground or whatever, they turn it into the paste and they turn it into the coke, how does it then become money in the bank? Do you know what I mean? What's the process, I guess, from the soil to the guy that buys his new car? How does that all happen? If you go back to something like, you know, I mean, if you go back, say, something like 20 years, 25 years ago, I think you would have, let's go back to something like the Northern Valley Cartel. Now, this is the one that's actually in Narcos 3 season three, which is still in Colombia. So essentially you have the Medellin cartel, Pablo Escobar, you have the Cali cartel. Pablo Escobar is known for his violence. The Cali cartel is known for its smarts, for bribing people. What you have in the Northern Valley is the atomic bomb of cartels because it combines the violence of Pablo Escobar with the smart of Cali. The Northern Valley, these men would have overseen the, they would have overseen every step of that business from the leaf to the turning it into cocaine to exporting it abroad, to selling it to, let's just keep it simple, selling it to the mafia in Italy, right? They would have overseen. Now it's much more um, carved into areas. So carved into sections. So in the countryside, let's just take, the, the, the ELN will receive that, then the ELN will sell that cocaine to a cartel. And then that's, they get the money immediately. The cartel now owns that. They will sell it to, let's say the Mexican cartel. How do they get the money back? Well, that's an interesting question. Sometimes it's literally human couriers come bringing in, but you know, these are huge amounts of money they have to be dealing with. This also reflects the evolution of the cartel, of the traffickers themselves. Again, 25 years ago, these traffickers in Colombia were basically where Mexico is now. The biggest traffickers had their faces on the front cover of the newspaper every single day. The Colombian traffickers worked out that that's not the way to live. As soon as your face is on the front page, it's a countdown. The countdown has begun to your demise. You'll be extradited, you'll be killed, you'll be sent to prison for the rest of your life. So now the traffickers are now called the invisibles. They're much lower profile. And these men and women are engaged in the legitimate economy. They're pumping those cocaine profits into construction of uh, shopping centers into new property developments, into legitimate businesses. So that's how the cocaine money gets into the legal economy. And also, I should say that there are a number of um, 
I mean, what do we call them? These kind of uh, these uh, like places like Panama, where it's very, very hard, and the whole of those banks in the Caribbean, where it's very hard to detect money. And some of these legal banks um, have been caught, uh, have been caught receiving drug money. I can't remember if it was on purpose or no, but um, HB, HSBC, I believe, had to pay a tremendous fine because they were receiving Mexican drug money. That's right. And not a single one of the main players involved went to prison. They just had to pay some money. Madness. Um, I'm very, I've looked into all of that a lot and it, it boils my blood the way the banks get away with all this stuff. But um, one, one, one other thing I want to ask as well is um, you've been to these actual laboratories, right? You've seen where the coke gets turned into the final product, or I should say where the paste gets turned into the final product. Um, tell us what that's like, if you can. Yeah, unfortunately, I've only been there with the company of the police. It was a kind of, I wanted that. I've never seen a journalist who's actually been in one of those final places. I've been when we raided a police uh, with the police. So this was a, the latest one I went to. It's, it's pretty common. If you go to Colombia, you can organize these trips relatively easy because they're just, they're carrying out these raids. I mean, every single day. It just depends on what part of the country you're in. So I went with the police. I mean, you know, it's a serious endeavor. It's a kind of, it's a jungle complex of about four wooden, um, kind of small wooden structures all connected by paths through the jungle. They have uh, the microwaves to, um, to dry them out. They also finally have these stamps. So every kilo is stamped with um, a logo to say who's it, who's does it belong to. The narcos by far are the most consumeristic people I've ever met in my life. So the ones I've seen are Corona, well, typically timely now, Gucci, um, Versace. I mean, this these guys, are, so you're out in the middle of the Colombian jungle. What, so, so they'll have like a kilo of Coke with like a Gucci stamped on it. Yeah, it's a kilo, exactly. And it's like Versace. So you're in the middle of, you're in these, you're in these rubber boots that go up to your knees because that's the only footwear you can live in the Colombian jungles where you can sink easily up to your knees sludging through the mud so you don't even wear like Doc Martens you have to wear like Wellington boots that's what everybody wears the FARC that was part of the uniform just Wellington boots so you're wandering around and yeah you've got this kind of Versace logo in your hand um but the, this one we had there was a dormitory for all of the workers the workers would be expected to live there and um and i mean this must have housed like i'd probably guess about 20 men um and it would have been men only again it's a machista machista society um and yeah they live they work there and they just all they're doing is just producing cocaine and they had set up an electrical system with generators uh, i mean it's the the whole thing i asked the police and he told me that he thought the whole thing probably cost fifty thousand dollars which, you know, takes them a week or so to set up, which is nothing for them. You know, the police raid it and they'll be on their way. What was funny was we flew in with a uh, what they call a sapo, which is um, a toad, which is uh, the Colombian equivalent of a rat. So we had, we came in on the helicopters. I think they were old, the old Huey helicopters. These weren't Blackhawks. And the man next to me was wearing a, what do you call it? One of those uh, ski masks? Yeah, and he was so he was the rat, and he was um, he was leading the army, and sitting next to him, he was leading the army to this cocaine laboratory, and sitting next to him was a very strange experience because I I could almost feel how little left of a life this man had, because the Colombians when they do this, you know the old thing that Abraham Lincoln said about what was it about the death penalty right better that ninety nine men innocent better that ninety nine guilty men go free than we execute one 
wrongly execute one innocent man. The Colombian mafia have exactly the reverse of that. When we try to find the rat, better that 99 innocent people die and we find that one rat than, than that he gets away. I mean, it's a, it, it's when a big bust goes down, the authorities know that in the coming days there will be a, a line of killings as they work their way back along the line to find out who was the rat. I mean, this is a, this is a brutal, brutal business. And it's it's hor it's horrific in certain aspects. It really is. Yeah, man. I mean, I could talk to you uh, about this all day. It's fascinating. But um, before we wrap this up, is there anything else you want to say that you think we might have missed for this episode? No, no, no. I think this is we pretty much covered it. And yeah, this has been a pleasure, really. And where where can people get your book, Toby? Plug all your plug your book. Tell them where they can get it. Yeah, you can pick up uh, Kilo. It's called Kilo Inside the Cocaine Cartels. You can get it from wherever. And as you said, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of academic texts on cocaine recently and when I set out to write this book the initial thing was I wanted to write that kind of the dispatches of the drug war you know I don't know if your listeners have read Michael Hurst dispatches oh I reckon yeah some of the best journalism ever put down on paper and I thought the madness of the drug war so I spent I didn't want to include any kind of statistics in my book I wanted to keep that to a minimum these are the human the human stories of the people behind the cocaine trade and I tried to kind of recapture that style of writing like the new journalism of Tom Wolfe, Joan Didion, Michael Herr, you know, to make it engaging, you know, because I I think journalism's going through a tough time and I don't see journalists paying enough attention to saying, how do I engage? How do I make this interesting? I, I agree completely and utterly. And it's something I've been battling for a while now. And it's like, you know, there a lot of journalists, I hate to say it or sound snooty or whatever, but it's true. A lot of journalists are actually not good writers. They don't know how to write the story, you know what I mean? But where with Kilo, like, it's great. I think if people, yeah, like you said, like, it, so for me, it's probably my favorite books are, um, like, Dispatches, um, Dexter Filkins, Forever War, and Generation Kill. And for me, like, Kilo was like that vibe, you know what I mean? So it's very good. I definitely think people should get it. <laughs> Man, that's, that's high praise. I really appreciate that. And where, where can people follow you on uh, the social media to keep up to date with all your reports and all that? So on Twitter, I'm Toby Muse, T-O-B-Y-M-U-S-E. And uh, more info on kind of my book, just www.tobymuse.com. And before I go, Jake, I mean, really, I'm impressed by... You know, we're in this kind of weird moment in journalism. The whole industry is collapsing around our ears. But, you know, I really do respect the way that you've kind of, you know, you're carving out your own path. You know, you're your own boss. You're raising the money by yourself. Really, I've, you know, you're one of the really few people I know who's doing that. You know, you kind of, it's really, I take my hat off to you. I appreciate that, mate. Yeah, it got to the point for me where I was like, it's either try and do this how I want to do it or quit. Do you know what I mean? Because um, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do the freelancing anymore. It was just killing me, man. But yeah, man, I appreciate it. For now, it's going all right. We'll see how long it lasts. But yeah, it's everyone that gets involved with Popular Front is very like uh, enthusiastic so far. So it's been great. No, that's great. Okay, right, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate. Speak to you soon. That was Toby Muse speaking about the rise of the new cocaine militias and how the peace process has basically fallen apart because of the government and various other factors. Definitely check out his book, Kilo. It's really good. You'll like it if you like this episode. Uh, if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front and you want to keep things moving forward, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. You can get loads for very little. There is bonus episodes. We do at the very least two a month. Uh, I think we're on like the 56th bonus episode, something like that. There's all sorts there. The bonus episodes are different as well. They go into like a very niche historical conflict. 
um, weird situations, um, you know, stories from reporters at war. Uh, I, th- I think it's cool. It's, it's worth it, I reckon. $5 is fuck all. Keeps this moving forward and you get a lot more content, especially while we're all on lockdown and everyone is bored. It's uh, it's worth it. I mean, I would say that, but definitely have a look. Patreon.com slash Popular Front. Or if you want to support us a different way, go to popularfront.co slash support. There's various different ways there that you can uh, get involved. Uh, this episode is sponsored by the defensepost.com, defense with an S. Go there for regular updates on the world in conflict. It's also sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest, Bond Avenue 97239. But of course, don't go and see them now because you've got to stay indoors because coronavirus is fucking up everything. But, you know, after this, definitely go down there. Um, tell them that we sent you. The episode is also sponsored by Black Triangle, an independent company manufacturing their own low-key self-defense tools. Check them out on Instagram at Black Triangle Group or buy their products from their website, blacktriangle.com, but it's black spelled B-L-K, so blktriangle.com. Tell them Popular Front sent you, they might give you a discount. I probably should sort that out properly so you do get a discount, but yeah, Black Triangle, they're a good bunch. Also, um, if you weren't aware, we are doing this, raffle this mutual aid raffle so basically there's a load of cool popular front stuff you can win if you enter the raffle it's only five british pounds i don't know what that is in american like six dollars seven dollars i don't know um but yeah it's not a lot and if you enter you can win loads of cool popular front stuff and all the money we're donating to three homeless charities shelter crisis and the big issue foundation because whilst coronavirus is on the people that have absolutely nothing no real like nothing has really been put in place by the government at least here in the uk um for the homeless so we're donating it to them because i think like in a situation like this you want to look after the people that need it the most if you can i mean i'm not saying it's a lot like oh we're not looking after it i know but at least we're trying to do something do you know what i mean um we've raised three grand so far so you know so far so good each charity is going to get three uh, is going to get a grand each at the end of the month, um, at the end of April or the start of May, we're gonna put all the names into a hat, everybody that um, you know entered the raffle and we're gonna pick the, the name out of the raffle, uh, out the hat. And whoever whoever's, whoever the name is, they'll win everything from the raffle. There's loads of stuff. Go to popularfront.shop to see it and to buy a ticket. Follow us on YouTube, or subscribe to us on YouTube, youtube.com slash popular front. There's loads of docs there that you might not have seen because YouTube nerfs us and it doesn't hit any of the algorithms. So go to youtube.com slash popular front, see our documentaries. Um, follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash popular dot front. On Twitter, twitter.com slash popular front co, or you can follow me at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n go to popularfront.co that's basically the landing page for everything to do with popular front all the episodes all of that go and check that out and again if you want to support us go to patreon.com slash popular front that's how we keep moving thank you very much to the following patreons they are adam bergsnyder amy rupert andrew hurley axel iverson azad bill wilson brian mclaughlin Trey Nance, Chad Walker, Charlie, Chris, Christina Rovetti, Christopher Martin, DR, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Diana Gorvenek, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Fragile Feeling, Frank Austin, Greg H, J 
James from the Discord, Janet Baserto, Joanne Stocker, Josh, Jungle King Virapan, Kay Hardy Roberts, Lawrence Abrahams, Liam Williams, Luis Nicastro, please tell me if I said that wrong, I think that's right, uh, Michael Brochetti, Moritz Zumbwal, Moody Al Rashid, Ari from the Discord, Olin Thorne, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from What Bitcoin Did, Cubal, Rubicon, Ryan Sandercock, Skatu Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Suwaze, sorry, Sarushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Tony Bin, and Vida Provost. Thank you all very much. Again, Popular Front, uh, no, <laughs> patreon.com slash popularfront or popularfront.co slash support. Keep us going. Like I say, the more money we get on the Patreon, the more popular front there is. You know, I think anyone that's on the Patreon Patreon can attest to that. Uh, music in this episode, the intro is by Home and the outro is by Son of Old. Go to see his music at sunblackpf.com. Mm-hmm.